Well, I'm, uh, I was reminded I should have said something. I don't see Anne's not here today, is she? Yeah, just uh, be thoughtful about checking in on uh, Ann Dykeman. She's been having some severe, severe back issues, not able to walk very well. So those of you who know Ann, love Ann, uh, I know that she would appreciate you reaching out to her. Just check in, or in on her this week and see what you can do to serve her and... Uh, and help her. If, if you can't do anything for her, you can come and mow my lawn. But uh, Well, we have the incredible privilege and, and really great responsibility to come back again this morning to our study through the book of First Peter. We're in chapter 2 right now, as you know, and the next text that the Lord has set before us is verses 6 through 8. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, and it is quite an amazing text, this whole text that we've been working on now for, I don't know how many weeks, I think this might be the third part of this one sermon that we started, uh, we're, we're brought face to face with the goodness of God, face to face with the goodness of God, and I hope that you've been challenged as we've been working through this to think about what we mean when we say that God is Good. There are many ways which we can witness uh, the, the expressions of, the variations of the goodness of God. I was out for my run this morning and decided just to, to take some time to look around and see beauty in, in the early morning. I don't know if it was fog or haze or Canadian smoke, but still beautiful uh, creation. We witness some of the beauty of God, some of the goodness of God, but maybe you're having trouble seeing Maybe you're here today and you're having trouble seeing and sensing the goodness of God in other ways. And we're finding that if we want to discern, or another way to say it is to taste, Peter uses the word taste in verse 3, but it just means to discern. If you want to discern the goodness of God, all we need to do is to come to, to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's here that Peter tells us about the ultimate, the most vivid expression of the goodness of God. And we're seeing that with, with a series of five truths that God uses the Apostle Peter to, to, to explain to us, to reveal to us, five truths which will help us to discern the goodness of God. And when we see and when we understand these five truths, what we'll find ourselves, we'll find ourselves motivated to yearn more and more and more for that which is spiritually nourishing. Because remember, I know we've drawn this out now, but for a couple of weeks now, we've been, we've been kind of feeding off of that. What Peter wants us to do is to yearn for that which is spiritually nourishing so that we will grow up into that for which we have been saved. And when we begin to see, to sense, to understand these five truths to help us to discern the goodness of God, we will be motivated. I, I hope that you walk out of here today motivated to yearn for that which is spiritually nourishing so that you'll grow up into that for which you have been saved. And those five truths, we've been working on them, and, and we would say those five truths, the first one we talked about is the, the person of Jesus Christ. We would first point to the person of Jesus Christ. As you come to him, or coming to him, he says in verse Four, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we made this statement that the supreme expression of the goodness of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know that God is good, look to Jesus. 
Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Get your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we were led to consider the second truth that he presents to us, and that is our position in Jesus Christ. Not only the person of Jesus Christ, but our position in. What is the position that we have in Christ? Well, he talked about two things. One, we're united to, we are in union with Christ, and we are identified to Christ, such that when God looks at the believer, he looks at us as he would look at his own dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. We are identified, we we are united to him as the foundation of our righteousness, and we are identified uh, with him as his house. He is building a house. And then third, we talked about this third truth. We have a purity from Jesus Christ, a purity from Jesus Christ. That is to say, he made us, what did he say? A holy, emphasize holy priesthood. We have been cleansed from sin. We are set apart. This is good. This is an expression of God's goodness to take believers, unworthy, listen, unholy men and women, and to make them holy in Jesus Christ. I came across an old hymn. It says this, holiness by faith in Jesus, not by effort of thine own, sin's dominion crushed and broken by the power of grace alone. Christ, the holiness within thee, his own beauty on thy brow, this shall be thy pilgrim brightness, this thy blessed portion now. We have our purity from Jesus Christ. We're just seeing, we're sensing, we're discerning the goodness of God. Not only in that, but then last week we found that we must consider our purpose in Jesus Christ. Our purpose, what is that? He made us a holy priesthood so that we might offer up spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to him in Jesus Christ. Not only does he make us holy, but he makes us a holy priesthood for the sake of offering up these sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices. Not not sacrifice for sin, that was already taken care of in Jesus, but sacrifice of thanksgiving, which he actually accepts from us. He doesn't look at us and go, you know, ah, forget that. He welcomes, he accepts these spiritual sacrifices in Christ. Now, that brings us to our text for today, which begins with verse 6. And let me say that one of the great strengths of our commitment to what we would call sequential expository preaching is that we are forced to deal with texts which are not necessarily easy texts. At the same time, in expository preaching, what we're doing is just essentially allowing the text to talk. And what I have found through nearly 30 years of pulpit ministry is that the Bible is usually pretty clear. So we're going to come to a text like this today, which has been the subject of quite a bit of debate and even some controversy over the years. And I'll say this, I have learned... This, this, this is just profound. I've learned that the text usually means what it says. All right? That's worth the price of admission just for that today. The text usually means what it says. Now, there are some things which are hard to understand. I'm not saying differently. But by and large, the Bible means exactly what it says and says what it means. And expository preaching 
is just letting the text talk. It's the text more fully repeated. So let's get to the text. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. For, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Let's pray. Thank you, O Father, that you have spoken and that you have spoken clearly. Now take your word, shine it forth, apply it to our hearts, and do your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The text begins with a very, very important word. The word for in the Greek language. Greeks love to just take two words and they would just take them and crunch them together to sort of intensify the word. And that's what they do here with this word for. The word for establishes, essentially establishes a strong connection between what has just been said and what he's going to say. In other words, what has just been said, Peter rivets to, he finds it in the scripture. He's been basing the whole time Peter's been basing what he has been saying on that which is contained in the Scripture. He finds the foundation for what he has said in the Scripture. And it's clear from these passages that he understands the Scripture is the Word of God himself. Now, I want you to notice something. He is not quoting the Scripture word for word. If he were going to quote word for word, he would say something like this. It is written. But he doesn't say it is written. He says it is contained in Scripture. What is happening here is Peter is giving us a spiritual principle or a scriptural principle. Let me say it that way. A scriptural principle, a a proposition or a maxim that is grounded in the Scripture. What he's doing is he's summarizing the teaching of the Old Testament using two particular books, two particular passages, one in Isaiah and the other in the book of Psalms, Psalms 118. And what we note here, and and, and this is obvious, but I want to say it, is that we serve a God who speaks. He is not quiet. He has not left himself without a witness. A witness, and that witness is his very Word. He is a God who has spoken to us. He's spoken to us in a very orderly manner, a precise way. He's given us His Word. His Word is a written down, recorded, reliable self revelation from God. And that brings us to consider the last of these five truths that will help us to discern. The goodness of God. Yeah, the person of Jesus Christ, our position in Jesus Christ, our purity from Jesus Christ, our purpose for Jesus Christ, but the fifth one, and really the the thing that holds it all together is this, our promise with Jesus Christ. Our promise with Jesus Christ. He takes the word of God, goes back to the Old Testament and says, this is the very word of God himself, and, and holds onto that as the promise of God himself that is true no matter what. 
If you want to know that God is good, then look at these five truths. Specifically, look at this. Look at the promise that we have with Jesus Christ. The promise we have with Jesus Christ. Now, this promise in verses 6 through 8 is presented, it's the same promise, but it's presented from two sides of the same coin. So I'll call it a twofold promise. Promise 1A, or this side of the coin. All right? What is it? The promise is God appoints the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, you see what he says here for it stands in Scripture. Now, notice this. Behold. Stop right there. Very familiar word. You know that word well. We talk about that word a lot. It is when you behold something, it's something marvelous. It's something divine. When you behold something, it's that which causes rejoicing. All right? It is a word that causes us to give special attention to something, usually to something that God has done. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 118. The stone, so so we know that there's connection here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he says, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, right? Something marvelous, something divine, something that causes rejoicing. What has God done? God has done something. Behold, I, not someone else, behold, I am laying, stop right there, that word laying, you, you want to underline that. In fact, underline the word laying in verse 6, and then underline the word destined in verse 8, because guess what? Same word, same word, to, to, to talk about the work of God, what God is doing. The word laying could be translated appointing. That's how I'm translating it. Putting, like putting forth, destining. It's the same word as I said used in verse 8. He's talking about the wonderful work of God. This whole text is built on that which God has done. And what has he done? First, as I said, he has appointed or he appoints the salvation of those who believe. Now you say, well, how do you know, Joe, that he's talking about salvation? We know that Peter's talking about the issue of one's salvation or the foundation of a person's righteous standing before God because that's exactly how this is used in all the other texts when this is mentioned. You could go, we're not going to go there for time's sake today because we want to actually finish one sermon maybe this year. Romans 9, Romans, uh, Matthew 21, Acts chapter 4. In those places where this text is referenced, it's always referenced in re- it's always used in reference to one's salvation. So you say, well, what do you mean God appoints or destines the salvation of those who believe? Well, when Peter thinks about it, he thinks about it in three ways. So let's let Peter tell us what he means when he says God appoints the salvation of those who believe. How does he do that? Well, first... He appoints the author of salvation. He appoints the author of salvation. 
I am laying in Zion. Now, Zion is a reference to Jerusalem, the very place where God would establish and engage his eternal plan of redemption. It's like the, the, the prophet Isaiah is telling us here, behold, be amazed, this is marvelous, the marvelous work of God over which you ought to rejoice. What is that? I am laying in Zion. Be amazed at this. I am ordaining something right here in your midst. I brought it down to you, brought it down to the earth. I am laying in Zion a stone. That word stone is, is, is the word, the common word for building stone. We've been talking about it in terms of a foundation, a foundation stone. Peter's kind of mixing metaphors here, but the point is the same. He's not just talking about any building stone. He's talking about the cornerstone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. The cornerstone, the one stone on which the entire stability of the rest of the building is completely dependent. Cornerstone, some, pe- some folks emphasize that it brings two walls together, but the cornerstone is the, the stone on which all of the rest of the angles of the building are dependent. If that cornerstone is wrong, the rest of the building is going to be a mess. Right? This cornerstone is said to be chosen and precious. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Elect and esteemed right, by the master builder. Rejected by others, but in the sight of God, according to verse 4, in the sight of God, elected and esteemed. It's, it's that which God has selected. It's that which God has valued. It's that which God has ordained or appointed as what exactly what the building needs. Now listen, point is this. There's not another cornerstone, okay? There isn't a plan B option. There is one and only one cornerstone. I want to show you a text that demonstrates uh, what Peter had in mind as he wrote this under the inspiration of Scripture. Go with me to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, Peter is giving a sermon, if you will, before the rulers and elders and scribes in Jerusalem. And this is the very point that he makes. What? The, The exclusivity of this cornerstone, the exclusivity, we'll say, of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, Let it be known to all, I love it, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And here's the point, here's the application. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God establishes, God appoints, God destines that there is one and only one author of salvation. There is salvation in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, it's not on the basis of your righteousness or some merits you've done Uh, you've earned by doing some good things. God is God, 
And since he's God, he gets to appoint things. And one of the things he has appointed by his divine prerogative is to appoint the author of salvation who is not you. It's not through earnest religious beliefs that you might have or that anyone has. It's only and ever through the author of our salvation, which is why the writer of Hebrews says what? Looking unto Jesus, the founder, the author and perfecter of our faith. You've got to know something about Jesus. He's the author. God appoints the salvation of everyone who believes. You've got to believe something. You've got to know something about Jesus. Namely this, that God put him forth, his own dear son. God, Romans chapter 3, verse 25, put him forth as the propitiation, that is the wrath-bearing sacrifice for sin. He went to the cross, and when he did, he was punished Listen, for your sin. He was crushed because of sin, but not just any sin, but because of your sin. And Jesus is the author of that salvation. So he appoints the author of salvation. Second, he appoints not only the author of salvation, he also appoints the avenue. He appoints the avenue. What do you mean? Well, look at this. Whoever, what? What does it say? Whoever believes in him. That's the avenue. He says it again in verse 7. For you who believe. And notice it's very personal. The word you in verse 7 is in the emphatic position. It's like highlighting it, underlining it, putting in bold italics. You. Very personal. The personal nature of this faith. The personal nature of this belief. And Peter says he's not emphasizing the one-time dynamic of this belief. As if, oh yeah, when I was back then, it is actually who is believing who is believing you are continually trusting christ and 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 the preposition should be really translated upon believing upon christ it's the picture of resting your trust and confidence fully on christ that's the avenue salvation isn't going to come in another way it's only ever been by faith trusting christ And that's a beautiful, I think it was Amy Carmichael who said, often on the rock I tremble, faint of heart and weak of knee, but the mighty rock of ages ages never trembles under me. That's the only hope, right? And and this is an honor. Now you see verse seven, so this honor. Now I know if you have a New American Standard, it probably says, so this this value. I've wrestled with that this week. I I think the ESV gets it better. This honor. In other words, he's saying that this is a particular honor for you. That's been a theme that Peter has had and will have throughout the book. So I think we're good with sticking with that that idea here. Uh, Not necessarily precious value, but I think he's talking here about the honor that it is, the personal honor that it is to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And it's ours. It is an honor to be called a Christian. It is an honor to be a believer in, in Jesus Christ. I remember the story of an old missionary couple. They were coming home uh, after years and years on the field. Their bodies were worn out, and uh, they were getting onto a ship to come back. They were, they were going to New York to come home to the States to live out their lives. And they happened to be getting on the ship, the same chi- ship as President uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who was coming home from one of his his uh, famous hunting trips. And he said that the missionary saw such 
pomp and such circumstance and so much of a big deal made about Teddy Roosevelt. And it really began to get under the skin of this, this missionary man. And he said, how about that? They, they're, they're praising him. And here we were out all these years and nobody knows a thing about us. Something is wrong. Why should we have given our lives for faithful service to God in Africa for these many years and no one cares a thing about us? Of course, his wife like all good wives, says, dear, you shouldn't feel that way. And he said, well, I can't help it. It just doesn't seem right. And, and when the ship docked in New York, a band was waiting there. I mean, he's just getting, adding insult to injury, right? A band's waiting there to greet the president. Papers were full uh, of, of word about the president's arrival. And no one noticed the missionary couple. They, they just slipped off and disappeared into the crowd and uh, found some cheap apartment on the east side and hoping they could make some kind of living in the city. But that night, I mean, it was still weighing on that man. And, and he said, to his wife, I can't take it. God is not treating us fairly. To which his wife said, why don't you go to your room and think about what you've said for a little while? And so he said, okay. And a short time later, he came out, tears streaming down his face, and said, I, I see it differently now. She said, what, what changed? He said, well, I was in there telling God how bitter I was at him and, and at the president and at the crowd. And when I finished, it seemed as if the Lord himself, you know, put his, his, his hand on my shoulder and said, yeah, you, you see the honor the president is getting when he's coming home. He said, but you're not home yet. You're not home yet. It's an honor to believe in Jesus Christ. And oh, can you imagine what it's going to be like on that grand day, brothers and sisters, to be welcomed into glory. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. It is a great honor to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He appoints the author. He appoints the avenue. Believe. And he also appoints the assurance of salvation. Do you see what he says at the end of verse 6? Whoever believes in him. And do you, do you see that? will not be put to shame. This is just marvelous. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, I want to point something out to you. You don't see in your English translation, but in the original, we read, I, I, I guess it would be called a double negative. Ooh, may. No, never. No, not ever ashamed. Not ever possible for you to be put to shame. Very strong wording here. The word be put to shame is a word that means to be dishonored. It has the idea of one's hope being frustrated. That will never happen. Praise the Lord. He appoints the assurance of our salvation. We sing the song, Jesus, Jesus, how I've trust, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Listen, the hymn writer didn't have the idea when, when he or whoever it was wrote I proved him more and more. I don't think he means we've proved him by our faithfulness. I, I think it means we've pushed him to the limit and he's still got more to go. He's that faithful. You sing that song not to prove it by, that you prove him by your faithfulness, but by his faithfulness. I'm continually bringing my old wretched self to him. Now, I'm not being flippant, but I'm telling you the truth. The hope of my eternal redemption rests not on me, but wholly and utterly on him. He says this, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast aside. There'll be no shame. Have you ever been ashamed of something? <laughs> I was telling somebody the other day, we went to 
months ago, we went to a movie theater. I might, maybe I tell you this before. Went to the movies, and my wife said, okay, honey, I, I don't go very often. Here are the tickets. I'm going to go to the restroom. You go to the theater on the left. Yes, sorry, theater on the left. Walk in. Think, why is it so dark in here? And why is the, 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 the uh, uh, credits are playing so loudly? But I go up to, to my seat, you know, 026, and there's a guy and a girl sitting in my seats, 26, 27. And I said, oh, this kid. Hey, buddy, what seat is yours? I'll, this is mine, but I'll go take yours. Don't worry. He goes, but this is my seat. I said, no, it's my seat, but I'm willing to go take yours. I'm not going to make... No, this is my seat. I said to him, what does this mean? And he looked at me and he goes, dude, wrong movie. <laughs> and I was all the way at the back of the theater. The movie had already started playing, so I'm having this loud conversation. I had to walk down the side and go right across the front of the walk of shame. <laughs> no one will ever be put to shame. There will be no walk of shame with Christ. Praise the Lord. So, first, the top side of the coin promise, God appoints the salvation of everyone who believes. But there's a second side, and what is that? God appoints the stumbling of everyone who disobeys. God appoints the stumbling of everyone who disobeys. You'll notice something happens right in the middle of verse 7. Talking about believers, 6 and 7, all of a sudden he goes from talking about believers to talking about those who do not believe. No article here, by the way. It's not a determinate people. This is an indeterminate. Uh, as if to say, the very unbelieving ones. He's saying just unbelievers in general. Unbelievers in general. He's talking about anyone who doesn't believe. And he's going to define and describe what he means by being an unbeliever later. So just stick with me for a moment. But just as we notice the action of God in appointing or putting forth or destining a stone in Zion, you notice here that we read of, of the, the, these other texts which emphasize the opposite response to the stone and to what God does. God appoints the stumbling of those who disobey. How? I don't understand this. Well, let me give you three supporting points. He appoints, first of all, the object of stumbling. The stone, for those who do not believe, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and as if he's, he, he's, he's eager to bring these both in and don't, don't stop yet, the cornerstone and same cornerstone is also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What does this mean? God actually appoints an object over which men stumble and at which they take offense. Stumbling. It's a word that means to fall over. Figuratively, it's used in the sense of an occasion for sinning. In the act of laying in Zion a cornerstone, or the one and only foundation for eternal salvation, that which is the cornerstone of stability and reliability for believers becomes a stone over which men trip and fall. But not only that, one, this one has become a rock of offense. And I love what Dr. Zodiati says about this word. He says that word offense refers to an action or circumstance that leads one to act contrary to a proper course of action or set of beliefs. Have you ever been in a parking lot? 
and you're walking along, not paying much attention. Maybe you're walking close to the cars because there's other cars coming down. And some, you know, good old boy parked his truck there with a hitch that's like overkill. And you're walking along and, oh! And what do you do? You don't go, oh, I should be more careful. What do you do? You start, you say, stupid truck. You start mentioning the intellectual incapacitation of the person who's the driver. You blame Walmart. You go back and kick the truck. I mean, have you ever done that? You go back and kick, and then you're like, ah, that hurt again. That's kind of the picture here. The stone that is set as a cornerstone is only viewed as the cornerstone but by, by believers. But for unbelievers, they collide with that stone and they fall over it. They're offended at it. What do you mean? Well, the, the, the stone's presence leads one to act contrary to a proper course of action. <laughs> what? Well, people get mad at God. Why'd you, why did you ordain this stone? I don't like it. Our, our grandson, Harvey, he's always, if you don't want to do something, I don't, I don't like it, Nana. I don't like it. That's what they say. I don't like it. People get mad at God. They keep tripping over Jesus. You ever find that? People say to you, everywhere I go, I, I seem to, to encounter this gospel message. I try to go and get away from Christ, and then I meet somebody else, and then I try and do something, and then something happens that makes me think about God, and I hate it. And they keep running up against the truth instead of submitting they take offense at God. Why? Well, because he's the one who appointed the stone in the first place. That's what I mean. He appoints the stumbling of those who disobey. By appointing an object. We could say a person. Jesus. But not only does he appoint the object of stumbling, he appoints the, the operation of stumbling. He appoints the way of stumbling. You stumble, you trip over Christ by disobeying the word. That's the operation. That's how it happens, by disobedience. How do people keep colliding with God's cornerstone? They do it by their disobedience. Unbelief. Remember I told you that Peter's going to explain what unbelief is? Unbelief is disobedience. Disobedience to what? Disobedience to the word. It's the word, this comes back up. He introduced us. I love how Peter's putting all these things together. He's a really good preacher as he's preaching here. He talked about it back in chapter 1, verse 23. The word, you've obeyed the word, you've become a believer. The word is by the, 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 the instrument through which you've been born again. And now he says, and they stumble because they disobey the word. Unbelief is disobedience. That's what he's, he's trying to get us to see. Disobedience to the word, the word through which men are born again. Unbelievers in their disobedience simply disregard the, the word. God appoints that stumbling over Christ always results from disobedience. There's not another way to do it because God won't compromise. You either follow his way or no way. He set it up that you must obey and that's what unbelievers hate. They hate to submit to God. Why? 
Remember one of the characteristics when we were going through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10, verse 3, one of the characteristics of an unbeliever is that they, they, they're independent of God's way. Paul says they like to establish their own righteousness. And God says there's no room for that. When you try to establish your own righteousness, God says, no, nope, that's, that's totally insufficient. And then that's when people get angry and they stiffen their necks against God. And what was Paul doing when he was trying to, going out, breathing threats against the church? According to Acts chapter 26, verse 14 in his testimony, Paul says, you know what Jesus said to me? It's hard for you to what? Kick against the goads. Those ox goads that keep an ox going. I mean, I, I, I've not really driven many oxen in my day, but those, those ox goads that keep the, 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 the oxen going straight and keeping them moving, if they kick against it, these things pierce into their skin and just make it more difficult, more and more difficult. And that's what the book of Proverbs says, right? Proverbs thirteen fifteen: the way of the unfaithful is hard. Some of you are here today and you found that. The way of unfaithfulness is hard. It's just hard. And you keep knocking your head against this iron-laden wall with repeated acts and attitudes of disobedience. And if God would just lessen or loosen his standards, then we wouldn't have this problem, would we? No, everything would be fine if God just let me come in my way or on my terms, but he doesn't, and I resent him for it. You see, God appoints the object of stumbling, but he also appoints the, the operation of it by disobedience. And then he says this, they stumble because they disobey the word, comma, as they were destined to do. Now, this is the, the text that has been a cause of debate and, and I'm sure misunderstanding and controversy over the years. But I think if you see it this way, you'll, you'll understand. God appoints the uh, object of stumbling, he appoints the operation of stumbling, and he also appoints the outcome of stumbling. God appoints the outcome of stumbling. I am taking this phrase at the end here, as they were destined to do, to be referring to the main verb in the sentence. We would call that the antecedent. All right? The antecedent is the main verb. What's the main verb? Stumbling. God appoints stumbling through disobedience, and by referring to this, this destiny, he's referring to the outcome of this stumbling. I don't think God actively appoints or destines people to unbelief. Why? Well, he doesn't have to. The whole world is already in unbelief. He has to elect people to belief. He doesn't have to elect them to unbelief because it would be unnecessary. The whole world is already in a state of unbelief because of sin. The whole world is already destined to their unbelief. He doesn't need to assign a destiny that is already theirs. Dr. Zodiades used to tell me, you need to understand this, Joe. He'd say, you choose Christ, but you cannot choose the consequence of your decision. You can't choose the outcome of your decision. John Piper said it this way. The point is this. If you believe on this stone, you can't lose. And if you disbelieve him, you can't win. Human unbelief does not frustrate or defeat the ultimate purposes of God. If God plans for Jesus to be the chief cornerstone, humans can betray him, desert him, deny him, mock him, strike him, spit on him, hit him with rods, crown him with thorns, strip him, crucify him, and bury him, but they can't stop him. 
They can't stop him from being what God destined him to be. What? The living cornerstone of a great and glorious people. You cannot choose the outcome of your stumbling. You can't make it what God said it can't be. You can't say, I'm going to disobey the word, but I'm going to get it my way. Of course, someone's going to say, aren't we talking about the goodness of God? Joe, aren't we talking here about the goodness of the Lord? And of course we are, but, but here you're saying that, that judgment, the outcome, God's judgment on the disobedient is a good thing. And that's how we discern God's goodness. And that's exactly what I'm saying. And we all do that. Why? If you go to a judge... And the judge just, and that's what's increasingly happening in our society, right? Judges are just not enforcing the law. They're just, they're just t- turning it off. They're, but if you go to a judge and that judge says, oh, yeah, you, know, you robbed a bank, killed three people. Well, let me not enforce the law. We don't say, oh, what a good judge. We say, what a, an unjust judge. What a bad judge. It's good that God keeps his promise. He's reliable. It's very good that God keeps his promise. This divine consequence to unbelief, you're not in control of that. You don't control things. So if you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts. Why? Because the very moment you harden your heart, you don't know that that won't be the last time that you stiffen your neck and harden your heart against God. Joe, are you talking about the doctrine of reprobation? When your heart is fixed in in your hard-heartedness? I have seen it in men over and over and over again. Talk to them about the gospel. Talk to them about sin. And their eyes just glass over. Don't harden your heart because it may be just then that your heart is fixed never to turn again. I know I've told you before. Some of you old timers are thinking about this now when I start saying that. I've told you before about the story of Roy Fry. Roy was an interesting kind of character. He grew up in the river hills around here, the son of a bootlegger drunk dad who was abusive toward his wife and children. Roy lived a hard life, and as he told the story, if I can remember it, some of you probably remember it better than I do, but as he told the story, he was working as a truck driver for the York Safe and Lock Company, and he was driving the truck today uh, together with a co-worker. And that co-worker said to him, and and I'll just summarize, he said to him, you know, Roy, you're a nice man, but you're going to hell. And that sent Roy back. He couldn't think of anything else. He couldn't hear anything else. The day he finished his work, he went back home just up the road here to East Prospect, had some chickens in the back area, went out to feed them. And he said as as he walked that long boardwalk out to feed the chickens, all he could hear were the words, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. He said when he opened the door to the chicken pen, those chickens were cackling, but they weren't talking chicken talk. They were saying, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. And he said it was almost as if God said to him that night, if you don't turn to me now. He said, I've never heard God say, but it's almost as if I thought in my mind, if you don't turn to me now, I may never call you again. And he said he couldn't help it. He couldn't take it. He dropped that feed. He went back that old boardwalk into the basement of his house. He said, I got down on my knees by the old daybed there. And I said, God, forgive me, a sinner. He obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't harden your heart. Why? Because God is faithful.
to his promise. And that's good. God appoints the salvation of everyone who believes. Praise the Lord. And God appoints the stumbling of everyone who disobeys. Praise the Lord. In 1988, an Armenian earthquake killed 45,000 people. In the chaos, one man made his way to his son's school only to find nothing but rubble. Other parents were stumbled and they were dazed. They were weeping, calling out their children's name. But this father ran to the back corner of the building where his son's classroom once was and he began digging. To everyone, to, to everyone else, it seemed hopeless. How could have his son survive? But that father had promised he would always be there for his boy. So he, he heaved those rocks and dug, calling for his son by name, Armand, Armand. Well-meaning parents and bystanders tried to put him out of the rubble, saying, it's too late, they're all dead, there's nothing you can do. The fire chief tried to pull him away, saying, fires and explosions are happening everywhere. You're in shock, you're, you're endangering others, go home, we'll handle it. But the man kept on continuing to dig hour after hour, eight hours, 12, 24, 36 hours. Finally, in the 38th hour of digging, a day and a half after everyone told him to give up, he called his son's name, Pulled back a big rock. He said, Armand. He heard his son's voice. Dad, I told them you'd come. I told the other kids that if you were still alive, you'd save me. And that day, the father helped the son and 13 other children climb out of the rubble. When the building had collapsed, the children survived in a tent-like pocket. The father lovingly carried his son home to his mother. When the townspeople praised Armand's father for saving the children, he said, I promised my son, no matter what, I'll be there for you. We have an infinitely greater father who makes a promise and keeps it. Have you trusted him? Do you know him? Have you submitted to this great truth? Or will you continue to bang your head against it? Ultimately, you do that. Jesus says, you'll be crushed. Don't be crushed. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are a faithful God. Keeps your word. We don't understand everything, but we understand the main thing. That is, there is salvation in no, none other than Jesus Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name.